This episode of Pastor Well was recorded in the spring of 2020 during the coronavirus crisis. We were using Zoom to capture these episodes, so you may notice a difference in the audio quality. Still, we're grateful for the opportunity we've been provided to interview guests that would have otherwise been really difficult to get in the studio. We hope you'll enjoy it, and thanks for listening to Pastor Well. Conversations with prominent pastors, teachers, and leaders. This is the Pastor Well Podcast from Southern Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. Now your host, Dr. Herschel York. Hello and welcome to the Pastor Well Podcast. This is Herschel York, the Dean of the School of Theology at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. I'm also pastor of the Buck Run Baptist Church in Frankfurt. The Pastor Well Podcast is dedicated to helping those who serve the church of the Lord Jesus Christ be faithful in ministry. We do that by engaging in conversation with people who have been faithful and demonstrated that, folks that will in, instruct us, encourage us, and there's nobody that I know more encouraging nor more instructive than my good friend and colleague, uh, Dr. Don Whitney. Welcome to Pastor Well, Don. Thank you, uh, Dr. York. I've uh, listened to every one of these uh, podcasts. I've been just greatly helped by them, so it, it's, a, it's a real honor to be with you here today. Well, man, uh, I, I, you know, I love you and think so highly of you and I'm delighted that a hero of mine in the faith is also a dear friend and a colleague. We get to work together. Uh, I tell people all the time that I'm God's spoiled child and you are one of those great blessings and benefits in my life. You know, um, a friend of mine, uh, Nathan Lino, who's been on this says that he, uh, before he preaches a text, you know, he, he brings in some expert that coaches him on that book or he's going to preach or whatever. And I told him, I said, yeah, well, I just walked down the hall. Uh, <laughs> literally, you're, so your office door is two, two doors away from mine. And uh, your friendship, your expertise being that close at hand is a real benefit and joy. So uh, obviously, we're recording this in a very different way than I normally do, Pastor Well. So we, for history's sake, we are in the middle of a global pandemic, and we're doing this via Zoom. So uh, how are you doing with, uh, with what's happening in the world right now? Well, I think uh, personally, I'm doing pretty well. I'm about to zoomed out, uh, to use a term right now. I know you understand that uh, too. And, uh, you know, no reference to the opportunity right now. I mean, in one sense, it's great. And I'll tell you one good thing about that. Uh, I just got some uh, reports from my uh, Garrett fellow, my grader yesterday, reading the journals of my students. And he said, I was so impressed by this that I, I need to share this with you. He said, I've gotten far more, and he's, he's graded for me several times before. He said, I've gotten far more comments about your interaction with and love for the students than I've ever gotten before. And I frankly I have to credit it to Zoom because I can see all their faces. I see their names by each box and I'm able to interact with them in ways that frankly I didn't have uh, opportunity to do in class. So I'm edified by that. So the pluses and minuses of Zoom are kind of my answer to that question. Yeah, that's right. Well, just to be, uh, make sure everybody knows you and knows who you are, uh, Dr. Whitney has been professor of biblical spirituality and the associate dean in the School of Theology at Southern Seminary in Louisville since 2005. That's when you came on faculty. 
Before that, he held a similar position uh, at Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary in Kansas City for 10 years. He is the founder and president of the Center for Biblical Spirituality, uh, author of many books. Uh, his, I would say, the best seller uh, is uh, his book on spiritual disciplines. Am I right about that? Uh, that's true. And uh, recently he wrote a great book on praying the Bible that uh, my my own grandchildren use that. In fact, I got to tell you, so Stella, uh, my nine-year-old granddaughter, is allowed to access on her iPod just about five people she can text message. And her grand and I are two of those. And I get an email the other morning about nine o'clock. She goes, do you know Donald C. Whitney? <laughs> and I said, yeah, I, I know him. But and uh, she's doing your uh, praying the Bible and uh, was just really blessed and fascinated by it. So I got to tell her, I said, yeah, he and Papa worked together. She that was cool that I knew you, that we worked together. So uh, the Lord's really blessed uh, your, your works. Uh, you, you wrote, so spiritual disciplines for the Christian life. Uh, how can I be sure I'm a Christian? Spiritual disciplines within the church. 10 Questions to Diagnose Your Spiritual Health, uh, Simplify Your Spiritual Life, and then Praying the Bible and Family Worship. Uh, man, uh, that's, a lot, that's a lot of stuff. Are you, are you disciplined in your writing? Do you do it every day? I, I do, but often just in a, a determined sense of, I mean, I have a little checklist of very few things that only the Lord and I know what they are, things that I'm determined to do every single day. I mean, if I don't go to bed till three in the morning, I'm going to do this at least for five minutes. And one of those is to write. So a lot of those days would be, yes, it was five minutes. I threw it away. Or maybe I just read something on writing for five minutes, but I do something on writing uh, every single day and have, uh, have for a very long time. But, but to go back to my introduction, I guess I've never done this before. On this podcast, especially Pastor Well, something you didn't mention is I've been in pastoral ministry on and off for 24 years, uh, 15 years at uh, one particular church in the suburbs of Chicago. And so that's extremely important to my writing and I think especially to my work here at the seminary. I agree. I, 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 I was going to get there. Let's talk about your upbringing. Uh, you grew up in Osceola, Arkansas. Yes. I know Osceola since I, my first church I pastored was in Marion. Uh, Osceola is not that far away. 40 minutes. Yeah. And uh, so tell me about growing up in Osceola, Arkansas. Well, it was a typical Americana. I mean, small town, county seat town in the south on the Mississippi River. Uh, I was taking to church Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, uh, nine months before I was born. Uh, my dad managed the radio station there in the, in the town. And so um, you know, he was well known in this town of 8,000 people. I knew everybody, everybody knew me. You know, if I was downtown or anywhere and I acted up, you know, my parents would hear about it before uh, I got home. And um, I, I remember, I mean, it's a kind of town, I remember when the city council passed an ordinance forbidding any league softball. Now, not church league softball, any kind of organized softball on Wednesday nights. Right. Because in conflict with prayer meetings. That's right. I go to Chicago and they have all kinds of organized sports on Sunday mornings. But I mean, that's, that's the kind of town I grew up in. So from, so tell me about you, you, you planned on going to law school, right? 
Yes. And I was. Where, and you went to, where'd you go to, to uh, college? Went to Arkansas State, played baseball there. And when I realized I wasn't going to lead off and play center field with the St. Louis Cardinals, that was gone. The next best thing was to be a sportscaster because of my radio background with, with my dad. And I had read Howard Cosell's book. Now that dates me a bit. Many of your viewers won't even know who he is. I never is. played the game. Yeah, that's right. He was on the original Monday Night Football yeah. uh, broadcast team. Yeah, I read that book too. Yeah, and so his biography convinced me that his legal training was the best training he had for his sportscasting career. So I figured I would do the same. And so I went to law school with the idea in my 21-year-old mind that I'd go to a big station and say, I'll be your lawyer and your sportscaster. I'd seen a lot of guys get stuck in small-town radio. So I'd, that was my 21-year-old thinking. Well, and so tell me, you had been converted at what point? Age nine. At, at nine. And at what point did ministry seem like what God was calling you to do? You know, my dad was the leading layman in our church. I'd done some lay preaching. But I, like I said, I was there Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, often the only person of my age there at church. And I, I, it never crossed my mind. So in college, I was involved with the Fellowship of Christian Athletes and was frequently out giving my testimony with the quarterback of the football team and captain of the basketball team and FCA groups and school groups and church groups. And people would say to me, are you sure you're not supposed to be a preacher? Well, I'd never thought of that before. And I had known people, however, who had gone into the ministry because other people had said they should go into the ministry and they were miserable. And when I heard that, you know what I thought? I thought, aha, Satan is trying to trick me. He's trying to get me to go into the ministry. Well, I'm, I know better than that. And so I never considered it. I go to law school and I hated every minute of it. And I began to hear the same things. I was involved with the FCA over there at the University of Arkansas. And, but now with different ears, because I was miserable with the path I'd chosen for my life. And so within a year, I had left law school and was enrolled in seminary. Went to Southwestern? Did, which was the real, really only conservative option of right. Baptist in my day. Yeah, yeah, right. If you were going into a, a CP-supported Southern Baptist school, that was it. Mm -hmm. uh, now, uh, tell me about, like, where there did you preach for the first time? Oh, you know, it's, it's scary, uh, Herschel. When I became a pastor, full-time pastor, I'd been an associate pastor, part or full-time for about three years before, but... The, when I became pastor of a church, January 1st, 1980, I had preached 12 times. And probably wow. two or three of those were in seminary preaching class, and those were 20 minutes. And those were the first times I'd ever preached other than Youth Sunday when I was a kid. Um, but so I had preached very, very little before I had pastored. Well, tell me about your first pastor. Where was that? What was it like? What size church? When I was in seminary as youth director and then associate pastor at a church in Irving, Texas, people that loved me, that was good. But I, I became pastor of a little uh, rural church in a, in a southern state uh, when I was 25. And I was so eager, you know, and just couldn't wait to get out there. And I was the 17th pastor in 21 years. Whoa. Well, yeah, that's a statistic that tells me a million times more today than it did 40 years ago. Yeah, no doubt. You know, you know what it means now. <laughs> yeah. We were there 15 months, which is almost a record at this church. And uh, my wife and I experienced five hospitalizations and three surgeries 
from the results of the stress of that time. And both of us were told, uh, you'll never be parents. And uh, for 16 years, that was the case. The Lord gave us a, a baby in bifocals the same year. <laughs> by <his call. laughs> uh, Well, thank the Lord for both, right? Yeah. Well, uh, you know, I, when you pastor a church like that, that has a record of turning over pastors frequently, you know, even best case scenario, their attitude is just going to be, hey, preacher, we like you okay, but I was here when you came. I'll be here when you go. Don't don't ask too much of me. Yeah, that, I mean, they said, you know, indicated it was always, you know, the pastor's problem. He was the reason. And, you know, mathematically, that's possible. But let's say that, indeed, the church called 17 losers in a row, and I was one of them. You know, I think the very best way you can look at that is, boy, they weren't really good at discerning pastors and calling pastors. <laughs> how, how, does, how does a church call 17 bad guys in a row? Yeah. Yeah. That's uh, that's an amazing thing. All right. So for, how do you end up in Chicago? Well, that's a, one of the most interesting providences in my life. So we, we were, we were, miserable. I mean, but uh, I, I didn't believe in trying to promote myself. I didn't even have a resume. So I wasn't sending out resumes. I did have a couple of good friends who knew I was struggling. And um, Dr. Mark Coppinger, a mutual friend of both of ours, was mm -hmm. teaching at Wheaton College at the time. He had grown up in the town where I was and where is a, a small uh, uh, state-sponsored Southern Baptist University. He had gone to school there. Both his parents taught there. Well, they wanted to bring him home to, to speak at their annual campus revival. And his wife, Sharon, was on the pulpit committee of that church. Well, Dr. Coppinger's dad, who's on campus, remember, told Sharon, you know, you're on the pulpit committee of this church. When you come down here, there's a guy doing a great job with college students uh, that you ought to talk to. Uh, he later went on to become pastor of the church. Uh, you succeeded him in Marion. And so uh, Sharon came down with Mark and said, uh, uh, talked to him. He said, no, I'm not interested, but I have a friend uh, who, who might be. And Sharon thought to herself, man, we're talking rural Arkansas to suburban Chicago. This is such a big jump. I, I probably won't talk to that guy. And in God's providence at that very moment, I just happened to call him just to shoot the breeze. And Sharon thought, you know, Maybe I'll go out and talk to him. I don't have anything else to do. So she came out. And would you believe that was the 16th church that had contacted me in 13 days? And I hadn't sent out any resume. So in God's mercy, he showed us he was going to leave us. But, but that church, Glenfield, was the last one of the 16 churches. And in six weeks, that's where we were. And God turned wow. our into dancing there, giving us 15 wonderful years. Wow. Tell me about it. Uh, what, what made it a great pastorate? What, what things came together for you there? Well, um, man, it's, it's, there's so many things there. The, the, of course, it's all about the people, but it was a dramatic difference. I'd never lived in a, in a urban area before, a suburban area. Um, so we had a lot of turnover. That was the biggest negative. It, in our community, which is really a bedroom community for Chicago, we were the closest Southern Baptist church to Wheaton College. It was about seven minutes away. Uh, in our town, there were about 33% annual turnover. And so it was like, it was like pastoring a parade, you know, to pastor this church. So great but we're always having great people come into our church. So as uh, at the beginning, I was there, it was Mark Coppinger's pastor just for a few short months. But, you know, 
Then when Mark became president at Midwestern, I was brought there. He was influential in my coming here to Southern. Harold Lenzel, uh, yeah. the, of the Bible author, was yeah. a member of that church, and God used that in some pretty uh, significant ways. And so the Lord just kept bringing people in and out of our lives that turned out to be a blessing to us for the rest of our lives. But it was the most united uh, church, the most loving church. And man, I was just thinking the other night about it, and I got all teared up, even though I, it's been uh, 25 years since I was there. Yeah, and I understand that. I'm blessed. I've pastored three churches and had great experience at every one of them. In fact, you know, Sunday I was preaching on, you know, the internet to an empty sanctuary there at Bakran. But after I go and look and see on Facebook, you know, who signs in, and there were people from all three churches that were watching me Sunday morning, and they're writing, oh, Herschel, we love you. Oh, you know, you were the greatest ever and all that stuff. And man, it's just such a, a grace of God. So I never had the awful experience like you, you had, you know, I, I mean, I had tough, some tough things happen, but there was no church that I ever had. that was just, you know, just out to get me or not, didn't love the Lord, didn't care about the word. You'd have a few people there like that, but not, but not the church in general. You know, I've, my experience has been more like what you just described in Chicago, everywhere I've gotten to be. Hmm. Well, for most of my life, until about 10 years ago, Kathy and I would have said, man, that's the, that's the hardest thing we've ever been through in our lives. And for a while, I, I thought, why, why did the Lord let that happen? When we got to Chicago, I said, aha, this is why the Lord allowed us to go through that kind of as a pressure cooker to get us ready for this wonderful church in Chicago. I, I wasn't ready to be there. I might have ruined that church. And that's what I thought until I began to teach in seminary. And then I realized every day I stand before guys who are pastoring that same church. Yeah. You know what I mean? And it makes a world of difference to say, brother, I've been there. Yeah, it really does. Uh, I think the, the best trainers of pastors are guys who have been pastors and to have both experiences, the, the, the tough stuff as well as the good stuff is really important and significant. Uh, Don, there are a lot of just fascinating things about you. Uh, all right. I, I meant, and I, I lament that I didn't do this. I meant to bring a sample of your handwriting. I've saved all the cards you've ever sent me. You're an incredible gift giver. You're a very, very thoughtful person. I treasure gifts that you give me my two favorite ties you gave to me. And I, your handwriting is stunning. Uh, tell me how you developed such beautiful, ornate handwriting. And tell us a little bit about your interest in fountain pens. Well, it goes back to pastoral ministry. My handwriting was illegible. I was about 30 years old or so. And I began writing uh, birthday letters, just a three-line note to the members of my church. If they were one or 91, I, I wrote them a, you know, just a three-line note. And uh, my dad had died. And one of the things, the two things really I brought back to Chicago after his death was a, uh, a sterling silver Parker 75 fountain pen and rollerball set that his boss had given him. And I found a workbook, uh, just with 10, 15 minute do-it-yourself lessons in it. Dotted lines, like a first grader's book. And traced letter, you know, now do it yourself. And after I did those 10, 15 minute lessons, I said, you know what? 
unless I'm in a big hurry, this is the way I'm going to write. So even if I was just copying down someone's phone number, it was, it was practice. So it was intentional. It was kind of a, a discipline. And after six weeks of doing that, it became my natural uh, penmanship. And so my practice, so much of my practice was in writing those notes to people in my church. And so after that became just kind of normal handwriting for me, you know, to this day, hardly a week goes by, someone doesn't mention it. It's open doors for the gospel. And uh, I, I enjoy it. it. It's something that, um, uh, and then with a mixture of the, you know, a nice uh, fountain pen that just writes so differently from any other writing instrument, I, I, there's some pleasure in it. It can add pleasure to an otherwise mundane task like grading. You know, I can say I haven't used this pen in a while or this ink in a while. And so just, it's a, it's a thing of pleasure and beauty that's in my life that wouldn't be otherwise. Yeah, I think that's a great explanation. I heard you say that one time that it, it, it adds a pleasure to things that would be otherwise mundane. But now I'm going to tell you, I'm not buying this stuff. You, you said to me one time, oh, anybody can do handwriting like that. Anybody can do it. I want you to know, I, went, I bought the little book that you know i got on on the internet i bought the book to, to trace these and practice and all that uh now i'm gonna confess i didn't stick with it six weeks i didn't i lost patience with it but after a week there was no difference no discernible difference yeah. I, I just I, I just can't do it i can't believe that you could do that well, no one is born with good penmanship, just like no one's born playing the guitar. No one's born knowing how to play the piano. Yeah, yeah. You have good penmanship, I think. Well, I, you know, the thing is, I do write notes. I think my penmanship is terrible, but I do write notes, and I do believe that uh, the, the power of a handwritten note, especially today, people think, oh, that's, that's passe now. No, because emails and text are the thing. When when you send somebody a really nice handwritten note, they get that in the mail. I mean, I have parents at Buck Run who take pictures in their kid's dorm room uh, of, uh, on the bulletin. They've got a, yeah. their bulletin board, they've got a, a handwritten note from Brother Herschel. Yeah. It matters. Well, you know, every semester I ask my students, I'll say, except for special occasions, when's the last time you got a personal handwritten note or letter? You know what they usually say? What? Ever. They've never gotten one. And so you take time to write a three-line note. You can do it as fast as an email. A three-line note and send it to someone who's visited your church or whatever. Number one, you can be sure they'll read it. They never get anything like it. And it's the height of personal touch today. You can send them an email, but they get a million emails, and they look just like any other email. If you got yeah, So much good pastoring is just that kind of thing that, first of all, it's important that people like you. You know, uh, I'm of the opinion that a lot of times when so-called doctrinal issues come up, uh, that it's really, that's not the thing. If you really scratch beneath the surface, you're going to find that the pastor ticks somebody off and then they looked for an excuse to sort of go after him and some particular doctrine became the, the club they could use. I think so much of good pastoring is just getting, is first of all, liking people and, and they can tell if you like them. And secondly, getting them to like you. Yeah. Well, you know, we tell our students often, uh, they really don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. It's they, for a reason. It's true. If they know you love them. They'll put up with a lot of rookie mistakes. A lot of Absolutely. Bad and they'll, they'll put up a lot of mistakes 16 years in, you know? Uh, yeah, it's, I say it's like being married. 
where you go through three phases. It's like the first phase is like, wow, I had no idea she had flaws like this. You know, this, this didn't come out early on. And then you learn how to make peace with those flaws. You, you're going to overlook them. But I think after you're together a long time, you go, you know, I don't even notice the flaws. I mean, she, she's perfect for me. I think it's true with churches. I think I've been at Buck Run long enough that I don't notice their flaws and they don't notice mine. We, we, we're just loving each other in a, a, a beautiful pastoral romance, if you will. And I think it's a, it's a lovely thing. Yeah, I agree. Uh, tell me about your wife, Kathy. You guys have been married how long? 42 years. And, and you were married how long before you, you had uh, your daughter? Uh, 16 years. Yeah, I was almost 40. I was just a few weeks from being 40 when she was born. Can I ask a personal question? Was, were you surprised by the pregnancy? Did it come unexpectedly or? Totally. I mean, we, we just had accepted the fact that God had allowed us to be childless for the sake of the ministry. In the Chicago area, you know, people came, we weren't a large church, but people came from 20 different towns and people would come from an hour in this direction and an hour in this direction. And the only time they were available would be in the evening. So I was gone every night. And so we just assumed that for the sake of the ministry, the Lord gave us the freedom, especially at nights, uh, and we were childless for that purpose. So we just accepted that. Uh, now you're a grandfather. Yeah. Two grandchildren. And the third on the way in October of 2020, God willing. All right. Indulge me here. Uh, compare being a, a father and a grandfather. Oh, man, it's it's wonderful. Um you know, all the things uh, that you hear about it are true, and there's just nothing like it, uh, man, for them to, to reach for you and, and call you uh, like my granddaughter does in her, in her 18-month-old way, call, try to say granddaddy in uh, an 18-month-old way, and uh, when uh, you're holding them and uh, the mom comes to get them and they swat the mom away, you know, and say no, you know. Oh, buddy. Yeah, I mean, that mine call me Papa, and there is no sweeter sound. Right. You know, I mean, I loved it when my boys called me Dad and Daddy, and all, but, man, it doesn't compare. It just doesn't compare because I'm not the person that feeds them and cares for them and all that. And so the love they give me is not because they have to, you know? <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah. I, I, I absolutely love it. Uh, you, in your uh, book, how can I be sure I'm a Christian? You talked about, uh, pastors caring for congregants that are doubting their salvation. I think that's one of the key issues pastors face. Just give us a little bit of advice here. How can we encourage members, uh, that are experiencing that, those doubts? Well, I think virtually every Christian experiences this, even though few would uh, admit to it. I think it's normal. And I base this on the really a whole letter, 1 John, which according to 1 John 5, 13, he says, these things, meaning this letter, these things I've written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God in order that you may know that you have eternal life. So John thought they were believers. They thought they were believers, but they didn't have assurance that they were believers. And so John wrote a whole letter to that effect. If you have one whole book of the Bible written about one subject, you can be sure it's a common problem. So, uh, I think it's common, and I think it's healthy on occasion to doubt your salvation, uh, because it shows that nothing is more important to you. Unbelievers yeah. are generally wringing their hands over whether they're right with God or not. 
But a true believer, when some sin enters their life and they're tempted to think, man, how could you be a Christian and do what you did or think what you thought, that, that indicates, man, heaven is your highest hope and your greatest desire. And anything that clouds that hope uh, troubles you. So I think it's healthy to occasionally experience that. And now, long-term unresolved doubts, that's another uh, serious mm -hmm. issue. I think it ought to be addressed by every pastor because it's common and the more spiritually mature and the longer someone has been a Christian, kind of the harder it is to admit that. I mean, for one of the leaders in the church to say, guys, you know, sometimes I wonder if I've even been saved. It's hard for them to admit that. So it's, it's a common issue, I think, that needs to be addressed. Yeah, even Paul said uh, that he didn't want to have preached to others and yet himself be a docimos. And I don't think that means backslidden. Right. Castaway rejected silver, right? Uh, reprobate. That's exactly right. Yeah, that's that's the word used elsewhere of a reprobate mind. So Paul is saying that the only evidence for genuine conversion is perseverance. And uh, the, yeah, perseverance is is a key part of that. And he recognizes there that self-deception is a reality. Right. That's right essence of self-deception. It's that you don't know that you're deceived. So Paul said, that could be me. And the only way to make sure I'm not self-deceived is persevere. Yeah. It would be disingenuous of us. To, all of us have known people that at some point said, uh, I wasn't really saved. I really wasn't born again. And we thought, wow, it, well, you fooled me. Yeah, right. So we, we've all been fooled by other people, uh, deceived by other people. And we've seen other people self-deceived how arrogant it would be for us to say, well, that's not even possible for me to be deceived. Well, look, think of this. When, when Jesus said in the upper room, one of you will betray me, they didn't all turn and look at Judas. Right. Uh, we suspected that guy all along. No, every one of them said, Lord, is it I? And then I think Paul had a pretty good idea what the, what the signs of conversion are, right? Right. But Demas fooled Paul. Yeah. Yeah, that's exactly right. Uh, well, t tell me about you, your view of the unforgivable sin. You talk about that in your book as well. What is yeah. that? Boy, that's, that's a whole message that I'll try not to be uh, too lengthy about. But um, I think uh, it can still be committed today. There are some that say you had to be in the time of Jesus. You had to call Jesus demonic and so forth. I don't see uh, I don't I don't see that. So I think the unforgivable sin is not merely persistent unbelief, which is a common view. I think those who commit the unforgivable sin also have persistent lifelong unbelief. But I think it's more than that. I think it's unbelief with enlightenment. To use the Hebrew six word in other places, an enlightenment. You know who Jesus is. You know he could save you. You're clear on the gospel, and you reject it. Most people who have persistent unbelief don't clearly understand the gospel. The people driving by Buck Run on Sunday morning look at your full parking lot and think, those fools. And they think they have your message all figured out when, in fact, they don't have a clue what the gospel is. That's not who Jesus accused of the unforgivable sin. It was the Pharisees who daily prayed for the Messiah. And they had seen through the miracles. They knew who Jesus was. But they realize I'm not going to bow the knee to this uneducated, uh, you know, backwater guy because if I do, I'll give up my place, I'll lose my my respect. They knew who he was, and they still rejected him. 
And I think that is the unforgivable sin. It's that element of enlightenment, use the biblical term, yeah. I don't think most unbelievers have. Because once you get that, there's nothing else to show you. There's no, there's no more information. There's no farther to go. Right. Unless the Holy Spirit regenerates you and brings you over, there's no more information. That's why if you go that far and then turn back, that's why there's no more uh, opportunity. Uh, to flip it around, what does false assurance look like? Yeah, I think this is also common. And I wrote the book, How Can I Be Sure I'm a Christian, with the expectation a lot of people would read it who did have false assurance. That's people who look primarily to the externals. Uh, they're the people who are a little more casual about assurance. They're the people whose attitude is, oh, I, I've done that. And even that thinking, I've done that, you know, is, is problematic and, and terrifying. But these are people who rely upon things they have done um, and uh, are, are just advantages they've had, a Christian home or so forth. And for that reason, they think they're right with God. Well, Don, I could talk to you all day long uh, about these things. First of all, just because we, we love talking about these things. It's one of the joys of being in ministry and at Southern Seminary. But I hope folks will get your books because they are so beneficial and profitable. Um, I like to end every pastor well, as you know, you've seen everyone with my twinkling of an eye around and just ask some uh, random questions and you just feel free to answer them however you like. Okay. Oh. All right. Who's your favorite baseball player of all time? Dan, the man use you. Uh, your, what's your favorite fountain pen? Uh, probably my Pelican M1000 because of some custom work I had done on the nib. Uh, did, did you have it ground to your angle of, of hand? Yeah, well, not angle of hand. Yeah, that was part of it. But uh, there, there's an East Coast. The, the, the thing that most people call a point on a fountain pen is the nib, the metal part where, you know, hits right. it. There's an East Coast nib guru and a West Coast nib guru. And so I sent it to the West Coast guy at nibs.com. Boy, how, how geeky is that? And uh, he ground it to make it a more extra flexible nib to approximate some of the old nibs from the 100 years ago that we call wet noodle nibs today that give you this great line variation like people see in the, the classic Coca-Cola uh, logo. Yeah. So I have no other pen really like that. And it's a big pen. I have big hands. And so that that's what I call my desert island pen. If I could only have one, it would be that one. Uh, okay. Do you have a favorite secular author? Uh, I th would Wendell Berry count? I know Wendell Berry's a professor. Yeah. I, I, I would put him in the secular camp, though he he writes about spirituality, but... His books really aren't Christian books. I mean, his fiction and his essays aren't explicitly intended to be to a Christian audience. So, so he lives not far from us. Have you met him? You know, I, I have hoped. I've corresponded uh, with him and uh, a little bit. I would love to. The day that, that uh, Andrew Walker and Russell Moore went out there, when I heard about that later, I was so upset that they didn't invite me. Uh, so anyway, uh, I have come within five feet of him at an event, um, where he was walking by, I'd gone up to try to meet him and he had to leave and walk by. And so I, I'd love to do that. Well, I met him one time. I'll tell you my window bear story, but it's really more about Gurney Norman. I don't know if you know who Gurney Norman is. So Gurney Norman, Wendell Berry, Ed McClanahan, these are sort of the big three guys in Kentucky, that generation of writer, and they hang out together and. I had Gurney Norman as a professor at the University of Kentucky. Uh, Gurney Norman wrote Divine Rights Trip and 
Ken folks. And uh, again, he and Wendell Berry and Ed McClanahan, big buddies. So I saw, uh, I was at a book fair in Frankfurt and Gurney Norman was signing books. I had Gurney Norman in class, spring semester of 1981, just happened to be the semester that Tanya and I got married. And uh, yeah, I hadn't seen him since. But I thought, you know what? It was one of my professors. I'm going to go buy one of his books, have him sign it, just so I have a signed, you know, autographed copy by Gurney Norman. And I, but I thought, you know, there's no way he'd remember me. I'm not even going to, I'm not even going to say to him, hey, this gray haired guy you're talking to was one of your students at one point. But he and Wendell Berry were sitting there together. I walk up and Gurney Norman goes, Herschel York, spring semester 1981, creative writing. And he goes, uh, Wendell, this is Herschel York. What? And I, my mouth dropped open. I, I mean, I became, I immediately conceded the fact that I'm a terrible professor. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I couldn't do that with some of my students this semester. Exactly. Know? I mean, how in the world Gurney Norman did that? But then he, so he introduced me to Wendell Berry. I got to talk to him. Wendell Berry signed the book for me. Uh, and I, you know, Richard Bailey, uh, is right, right, writes on these guys a lot, knows the three of them quite well. And, uh, so I had somebody to talk to him about, but anyway, that that's. Well, can I just say this about reading Wendell Berry or people like that reading the fiction and so forth. I am a better wordsmith. Yeah, absolutely. Read Wendell Berry. And I'm a writer. I'm a preacher. I am a wordsmith. So even though it's relaxation reading, it's, it's both edifying and it's helpful to me in ministry. Right. Well, you're learning. You're learning from them how to do it. What, what, you're learning how to craft, you know, the English language for your purposes. And yeah, there's times in every Wendell book, Barry book I've read, especially as fiction, I will just kind of clasp it to my chest and tear up that anyone could put words together on a page so beautifully. Yeah, absolutely. I, I'm, I'm with you. I have Joan Didion is the person who does that for me. She's my, my favorite. I've got a Joan Didion story too involving Mark Coppinger, but I'll save that for another time. Uh, uh, and uh, if you could go anywhere in the world, where would you go? Oh man, I thought you were going to give me the vacation question. My favorite vacation spot is home. You know, I get on, really? I've averaged 94 airplanes a year for 23 years. I've been on 2,200 airplanes. When I have time, I don't want to go anywhere. I just want to go home and, and sell them. I love my home. I have my pens here. I have my books here, as we've talked about. But if I could go anywhere, I, I uh, if it were for Kathy's sake, I'd take her to Florence, Italy. She is a um, artist. She's always wanted to go brilliant there. Artist. She's a brilliant artist. Thank you. She's Thank not, she's not just you know artsy. She's fantastic. She's good. I can brag on her because I have nothing to do with it. And she yeah. loves. I've had the opportunity to preach there twice. She wants to go back there. She wants to go to Florence. So for her sake, I would do that. Uh, if it were my trip, I would probably want to go back to London because there's so many things I haven't seen there. The Churchill War Rooms, uh, Chartwell down in Kent, Bunhill Fields, some things that um, I would like to see there. But basically, man, give me a choice of travel or stay home. And, and 11 times out of 10, I'm going to stay home. Well, that's odd. I love my home, but I would choose travel. Uh, you and I are both frequent flyers. This is, Tony and I are talking, I think this is the longest in years that I've not been on an airplane. Oh, absolutely. Uh, no question. Yeah. For me, it's easy 23 years. I would have hit 2 million miles on Delta this year thought, and thought that I would. Uh, I'm going to probably only make it to about 
1,960,000 miles this year. Now, I'll probably be about 40,000 miles short of my 2 million mile mark with Delta, but it's, it's a thing, man. Oh, man. Yeah. Well, uh, Don, it's great to have you. I, I love you as a friend, admire you as a preacher, a writer, a colleague, and so grateful for uh, what you do for the kingdom, how the Lord uses you, and just delighted to call you my friend. Thanks for being with us today. I'm Pastor Well. Well, thank you so much. This sounds like a mutual admiration society, but I, I don't want to press up the opportunity to say thank you for the encouragement you've been to me, the leadership you provide the School of Theology, and uh, what a great example in, in preaching and in marriage. And uh, and just God bless you, and I'm, I'm honored that uh, you're the dean at the seminary. And well, my thank you. You are very kind. I, I appreciate it. I want to thank not only Don Whitney, but all of you who've tuned in. If you've not yet subscribed, make sure you do so on YouTube or on your favorite podcast app and make sure you don't miss an episode. And Lord willing, we will see you again next time on Pastor Well. <laughs>